I'd like us to turn back to the passage that we read a wee bit earlier in uh, Colossians chapter 1. And uh, that's on page 1182 of the Church Bible. And we're looking especially at verses 15 to 20 of that uh, chapter. I wonder if you've ever been on uh, something like Google Maps and found a satellite picture of your own home um, and you can, you, know, you can zoom right in and you can see your house there. Maybe you can you know, recognise a tree in your garden or you know, maybe your car out in the street if it happened to be there when they took the, um, the, uh, the photograph. And then you, you start to zoom out and you zoom out and you see maybe where your house is in relation to, to Coatbridge, and then where it is in relation to uh, Lanarkshire, and then you zoom further out, you see it in relation to Scotland, to, to Britain, to Europe, and then if you zoom out far enough, you, you see, it would be just a sort of a pinpoint on the map, uh, but where your house is in relation to, to the world, and you see that the big picture of the whole planet and you can just see where the pinpoint of your house is. Well, this, pa- this passage in Colossians chapter 1, it gives us the big picture. Uh, the big picture of, of creation, of time, of history, of the universe, of the whole of reality. And, and it deals with the big questions. Uh, the big questions of life, like where have we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And it claims that at the centre of it all and supreme over all is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what is most remarkable about this claim that is made here by Paul, some people, some scholars say that Paul is actually quoting from a hymn that was maybe widely used among the early churches. Uh, but either way, uh, this claim, that what, what this says about Jesus Christ, um, is made only 25 or 30 years um, after this person, this person of whom Paul speaks in these most exalted terms, this person was butchered in the most horrific and degrading way on a cross outside the city wall of Jerusalem. 25 or so years later, Paul is writing this about that crucified victim. And so, as we look at this, we will see what, what, the, what the earliest Christians believe, believed, what they celebrated about Jesus Christ. So let's, let's look at the, the passage, let's go through it. Uh, the first thing we're told in verse 15 is that Christ, the Son of God, that he is the, in, the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. Human beings cannot, we cannot see God. Uh, that reflects um, Old Testament belief that God could not be represented by visual images. In fact, the second commandment in the Ten Commandments given to Moses were that you can't make images of God 
Because you can't, you can't represent God, the, the unseen God. You can't do that. So idols, statues of God were, were forbidden to the, the Israelites. Because that would be in contrast to the many gods, the many temples that were there in, in Colossae. But the Son, we're told, Jesus Christ, makes God visible. He makes God known. And he, he does that by becoming human, by becoming a human being and living among us. So the, the kind of picture that we have here is, if you imagine you're sitting in a room and there's someone in the next room to you, but you can't see them because there's a wall in the way. But the door's open and out in the hallway there's a mirror and you can see the image of that person in the mirror. Um, and that's the kind of picture we have here, that Christ is the, the image, the reflection of the invisible God. And he is visible, uh, he is the visible image because he became human and lived um, among us. Next thing we're told is that he is the firstborn over all uh, creation. Um, firstborn appears, the word firstborn appears twice in the passage, it appears again in verse 18. But there it's firstborn from the dead. And that's speaking about resurrection and new creation. But here it's speaking about the original creation, that Jesus Christ, the Son, is the firstborn over all creation. Now, we have to understand this is not saying that Christ is the first created being. He is uncreated. Um, we're told that, in fact, in the next verse, because it, we're told there that all things in heaven and on earth were created by him or through him. So he is not created. But in the, in the, in the culture that, that Paul himself, the writer of this, came from, Paul was a Jew. He was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. And in that culture, that Jewish culture, the firstborn son had, in any family, had a special place of, of preeminence, of honour in the family. The firstborn son was the heir of the family line and the family name. And, and this term, firstborn, appears 130 times in the Old Testament. So it was a, it was a kind of a, an important aspect of the culture. And the emphasis here is not on the sort of the, the birth bit, but on the fact that Christ has that place of honour and preeminence over the whole of creation. Just one, one example from Psalm 89, uh, where God says, uh, I will appoint him, that's the king who is in the line of David, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So it's not to do with temporal order of birth, uh, but it's to do with honour and preeminence. So why? Why is he the firstborn of all creation? Why does he have this place of honour and status and preeminence? Well, we're told in verse 16 that, but in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So there we're told that Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the creator. That he was there 
in the beginning. Um, it's put in different ways. It, it was created in him. It was created through him. So along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, God the Son was there at the beginning creating the universe, creating all things. It was all done through him. Creation is not, it didn't happen independently of the Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the, the, the passage that we referred to in the children's talk, um, the creation of human beings, where um, you have there, it's sort of at the end of the account of creation, and God uses a special form of words in creating humans. God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And it's a plural used there. Now, Hebrew is not like English. You know, in English, like the Queen will talk about, you know, we did this or we will do that. Hebrew is not like that. Um, it always uses singular for single people and plural for, you know, a group of people. And yet here, the one God, and it's clear from Genesis 1 that there's only one God, he uses this plural form. Now, it doesn't develop that, but from a New Testament perspective, we can look back and say, ah, oh, yeah, because there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're all involved in creation. And that includes the Son uh, who became Jesus Christ. And we're told that all things were made through him, the entirety of creation. You can read Genesis chapter 1 and just, you know, read of just how everything there is made by God. And Colossians is saying it's all made through Christ the Son. Or, I don't know if you like to watch um, things like, you know, David Attenborough programs on TV. And I recommend that you do because those kind of programs are amazing. They, you know, they... The, the, the photography, the camera work is amazing how it focuses in on, on parts of creation that we're never going to see with the naked eye. And, you, you know, just that you just get a, some sense of just the vastness and the magnitude and how complex and intricate and, and wonderful creation is. And what Paul is saying here is it's all made through Jesus Christ. He is its maker. Uh, Paul says in, in verse 16, whether visible or invisible, uh, things that we can see with the naked eye or things we can't see. And then he goes on to say, throw of whether thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, and whether that's human authorities and powers, or whether it's sort of angelic and demonic powers and authorities, because the Colossians, it seems, were a lot of people were very taken up with angelic beings. Whatever it is, all of it in its entirety is created by Jesus Christ. And we're also told that it's created not only um, in him and through him, but it's created for him. It's created for the pleasure, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Some of you may have heard of uh, Francis Schaeffer. He was a, a sort of mid-20th century um, a Christian writer and thinker who lived in the, in, um, in the Alps. And he had a kind of um, a sort of centre where people could go and study for a while. And uh, my parents had a friend who went to spend some time there in Labrie in Switzerland with, with Francis Schaeffer. And one day he took a small group on a, on a hike high up into the Alps. And 
Um, up there, there were these sort of alpine flowers, which only grow at quite high altitude. And so very few people actually get to see them. And this friend of my parents, she was called Helen, um, she said to Francis Schaeffer, it just seems such a waste, you know, that here's these, you know, gorgeous flowers, and, and hardly anybody ever gets to see them. And Schaeffer's response was, no, it's not a waste, because, you know, God created that flower, and he created it for his own pleasure, and God takes pleasure in that flower. And we could say the same about Christ, that, you know, that, that high alpine flower that maybe very few people see, see or the, the creatures at the bottom of the ocean, which we don't even know about yet. He takes pleasure in it. It is made for his pleasure, for his glory. But also, history is for him. It, it, it's all made for him. The purpose of your life, the purpose of my life, is for him. The whole of creation is for him. So that means that the ultimate meaning, the ultimate purpose of your life is, is personal. You were made for a relationship with Jesus Christ, to know him, to love him, to serve him, to honour him, to glorify him, to worship and enjoy him. That, that's the purpose of your life. Well, then in verse 17, uh, we're told that he himself is uh, before all things. Whether that's in, it could be thought of in terms of time, that he was there before the beginning, or in terms of just in importance and, and status, that he is above all things. And then in verse 17, we're told that, and in him, all things hold together. So it's not just there's an act of creation at the beginning and then the world is left to get on by itself. It's not like sort of winding up a clock and then just leaving it to tick away. No, every second, moment by moment, the whole creation is held together. It's sustained. It's provided for. It's kept going according to what we call the laws of nature. But it all keeps going. It's held together by the Son, by Jesus Christ. The only reason... The universe doesn't implode or disintegrate is because in him all things hold together and, and and for us when 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 you enjoy something maybe you enjoy you know you go for a walk and you enjoy a landscape or you, you enjoy a piece of music listening to a, a piece of music or maybe going to an art gallery and seeing works of art there or maybe you, just, you know a really good cup of coffee or a meal or just, you know, being with friends, being with people that you just really enjoy their company. Just remember, think. It's only because of Jesus Christ. It's only that in him, all of this holds together. Well, in verse 18, we're told that he is the head of the body, uh, the church. And the word church here doesn't mean it's not a building, it's not even an institution. But it's a community of people. Of course, in Colossae, that was a, a local community, a local fellowship of believers, just as we are here today in, in Coke Ridge. But also part of a worldwide, a global fellowship of people made up from every race and tribe and ethnicity and language and generation. A redeemed community. And 
The church is Christ's body over which he is the head. Now, we've all got heads and we've got bodies and the head has authority over the body. It kind of directs it, it governs it, it rules it. So, you know, my, my um, brain will send a, send a message to my um, hand to, to wave in the air and my hand is being governed by my head. So the body depends on, on, on the head for life, for power, for direction. Um, and, and, and the church depends on, life, on, depends on Christ for that. He is the one who rules over uh, the body. He directs it, he governs it, he gives it life. And then, uh, starting in verse 18, we're told that he is the beginning and the firstborn from, from among the dead. So that in everything he might have supremacy. So this is speaking about resurrection, being the firstborn from the dead. Beginning here speaks of the new creation, the new beginning that God will bring in in the future. But Christ is the first instalment of the, of, of the, the firstborn from the dead. So the earliest Christians along with most Jews of that time, believed that there was the present age, which we're living in now, but also an age to come in which the dead will be raised and God will renew the whole of creation. And sometimes often in, in, in the Gospels we read about the kingdom of God, we read about eternal life. And that's that life of the age to come, this coming age when God will renew all things. And part of that is that God would raise the righteous dead. But the Christians, in contrast to the, uh, the Jews who, who didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah, the Christians believed that resurrection came in two stages. Yes, there's this future resurrection to come in, in the future when God will renew all things. But the first stage has already happened. It happened on the first Easter Sunday when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and all the earliest Christians believed that based on the eyewitness testimony of his companions of the apostles so the resurrection is it's two stages but it's not simply two stages Jesus is the firstborn from the dead he has preeminence uh, high status and honor and, and it's it's in his resurrection and because of his triumph over death, that we have the certain hope that we too will rise from the dead if we belong to Jesus Christ. He is the one who has defeated death. And, and that's an amazing thing because for all of us here, it's kind of like our, our whole life is a battle with death. We're all dying. Um, from the youngest to the oldest, we're, we're, you know, we're moving towards our death. Our bodies are dying. And one day, we will die. And, and you, can, you, know, you can try and stay alive as for as long as possible. You can um, you know, eat the right stuff, eat your green vegetables and your purple fruit and your porridge. And you can you know, exercise to keep fit and well. And, and that's good to do that. And it might give you a few extra years of life and, or healthy life. But in the end, death is going to get you. Death is going to win because death wins with all of us. All of us one day will be defeated by death. And yet the gospel tells us that here is this man who has come, this man Jesus Christ, 
and, and, and death did all it could to him. He was crucified. He, he died the most horrific death. But he came back. He defeated death. He is victorious. He is conquering, even over death itself. And the great news is that if we belong to Jesus Christ, if we are in him, as it's put in the, in the scriptures, then for us, one day, death will be conquered. That is the amazing news of the gospel. So, and it says, so that in all things, he might have the first place, that he might have the ultimate honour and supremacy and preeminence that he is worthy of. And then in verse 19, it says, for, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Later on in the next chapter, Paul says that in Christ, all the fullness of deity, the fullness of God, lives in bodily form. So it's not as if there's just a bit of God in Jesus Christ. It's the fullness of God that dwells in him. And that language of fullness, it echoes the Old Testament. So, for example, um, um, Jeremiah 23, 24 says, God says, Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Or Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the phrase that God was pleased to dwell in him also reflects Old Testament language of God living in the temple. Um, Solomon built this temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. It was called the house of God and in a symbolic way it represented God living among his people. And so Jesus is being presented here as the new temple, the new house of God. In fact that, that temple in Jerusalem which Solomon built was only a pale reflection. The reality is Jesus Christ. So in, in Christ the Son, the totality of God's spirit, God's glory, God's wisdom, all of God's attributes dwell in him in bodily form. And then in verse 20 it says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Speaking about reconciliation. The word reconciliation, it means making or restoring peace where previously there wasn't peace. So that, that assumes that there's a disruption in this creation that was made through Christ. And of course we read about that in the Bible. We read about the revolt against their creator of the first humans of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve who were given rule over the rest of creation under God's supreme rule. And they, they rebelled, they revolted against their maker. And that revolt, it affected them and it affected their relationship with God and it also reflected everything under them and their relationship with everything under their rule that affected the whole of creation. It was as if Adam and Eve were, were steering a huge oil tanker and they steered it onto the rocks and not only they went down, but the whole tanker went down with them. And because of that, we live in a creation that has gone wrong, where there is human evil, which every one of us contributes to that, that sort of massive heap of human sin and, and evil. And we also live in a world where, where nature itself is in disharmony. 
And yet here we're told that through Christ, peace is made. And in particular, through his death, through his blood shed on the cross. And it takes us from this sublime uh, view of, of the whole of creation and all its vastness and splendour to this scene of horror uh, outside the wall of Jerusalem where a body that has been beaten and bludgeoned to a pulp lies dying or, ha- or hangs dying on a cross. And it's the same person, this person through whom the world was created, who is hanging there, suffering on that cross. And yet this event, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the very heart and centre of world history. Because through that event, through Jesus Christ's death, there is reconciliation for, for the whole universe, for, 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 all, for heaven and earth and everything that is in them, for all things in heaven and on earth. Through that event, there is the restoration of peace, of of wholeness and harmony and blessedness that God originally made for the creation. So Jesus Christ, in his death, reconciles, he restores peace. Through his death, there is the healing of a broken creation and a broken humanity. Some of you might um, have read the uh, the, uh, Tolkien's uh, third book in the trilogy, The the Lord of the Rings, the, the final book, The Return of the King. And there's the character Aragorn, who in, in, in many respects is a kind of a, like a Christ-like figure. And uh, Tolkien himself was a Christian. But there's a, a really memorable phrase in that about Aragorn, who's the king, who's returned. And it says that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. And the hands of this king, Jesus Christ, are the hands of the, he- of the healer. He is the one who will bring healing to the whole of creation. And he does so at great cost to himself, the cost of his blood shed on the cross. And there we see the love of God in Jesus Christ, the love of God for for us and for the whole of creation. So now in the universe there is alienation, there is hostility, there is lack of peace. But the whole creation, everything in heaven and on earth, has been reconciled. It's already been reconciled because Christ has done that work of dying on the cross. But there will be a future realisation of that when Jesus Christ returns and when God renews the whole of creation. Just one sort of caveat or one qualification to that. When it speaks of God reconciling all things, that doesn't include humans who continue to reject God and who continue to reject Jesus Christ. In any relationship, any broken relationship, if there's to be reconciliation, it involves acknowledgement of wrong by the person who's done wrong and the acceptance of forgiveness. And God, to us today, he he holds out an offer to come to him, acknowledge your wrong, turn from your sin and, and receive his forgiveness. That offer is open to each one of us today. But if, and if you, if you receive that offer, you will be part of that reconciled creation. But if you refuse it, you will be excluded. So just to, to bring all of this together, um, two things in conclusion. First of all, about creation. It's created by Christ. It's held together by him. It was made for him. It, is, it, it belongs to him. 
So this creation of which we are a part, which we uh, live in, which we belong to, is not evil. It's, it's a good creation, but it's a broken creation. And yet it is still Christ's universe. It was made for him. And so we should do everything, everything in life, acknowledging that Christ is at the centre of it all and rejoicing in that fact. And so as we live in this world and we, we have many different tasks, many different occupations, but you know, we can live in this world with a spirit of, of discovery, seeking to discover creation, taking an interest in it, uh, loving creation, caring for it, studying it. That is all, and doing so, recognising that it is Christ and that he is at the centre of it all. Um, what's called environmentalism is, 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 you know, it's in the news almost every day. Um, I prefer the term creation care. Um, and that's, that's vitally important. And in fact, the gospel provides the best basis for caring for creation. Because we believe that it's made by Christ and made for him. What better reason for, for caring for creation? And so if we, if we are followers of Christ, why not act on that? Maybe you are acting on that. Maybe that's kind of almost instinctively you feel that you should you know, look after creation, that you should uh, avoid um, polluting and, and so on. But you know, here we find a reason for that because this, this creation, it belongs to Christ. It centres on him. But also human history and culture. We can enjoy art and music and architecture and food and, and do so giving thanks and praise to him. It's good practice to, give, to say grace or give thanks before eating your meal, but also before enjoying anything that you enjoy, to give thanks to him. Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch politician and theologian, said that there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. It all belongs to him. So whatever you do, in work, family, leisure, the church, in everything, do it for him. And of course there is hope for this creation. It is reconciled. It has a glorious future. Lastly, about Christ himself. He is worthy of, of our worship. What you worship is what you put first in your life. Even sometimes sacrificing other things for that thing. Jesus Christ is the, is the only one who is worthy of our worship. He is not one great religious leader among others. He is in a class of his own. And along with worship there is the church's mission to make Jesus Christ known. In fact, there's not really any difference between mission and worship because mission is making Christ known. It's proclaiming his great worth, that he is worthy to receive the praise of, of, of the whole of Coatbridge, of the whole of Scotland, of the whole of the world. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Let's conclude our worship singing the hymn, Jesus Shall Reign, uh, Wherever the Sun. Was this successive journey?